Our second Bible reading is John 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open so we can keep looking at that passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. In John 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Father, we want to hear Jesus' voice. Please, by your spirit, would we hear it now through the preaching of his word, And would we then follow Jesus to the glory of his name? Amen. Something that all parents of young children have to deal with is separation anxiety. Little children don't like to be separated from their parents, especially their mama. Separation anxiety is very understandable. Children feel secure with their parents and insecure when they're not with them. But there are things parents can do to make separation anxiety less of a problem. There are ways you can prepare for separation so that when a parent waves goodbye and leaves their child with a babysitter or at a daycare center, the child will have more of a sniffle than a meltdown. Back in John 13 verse 33, Jesus calls his disciples, my children. 
And in his farewell message to these disciples, these children, he's seeking to minimize their separation anxiety. He's told them he's leaving them. They're understandably alarmed to hear that. In chapter 13, for example, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow now. And Peter replies, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Peter and the other disciples don't want to be separated from Jesus. And so throughout these chapters, John 13 through 17, Jesus does everything he can to prepare the disciples to reduce their separation anxiety. In today's passage, Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. It's a prayer that began in last week's passage, but in these verses, Jesus switches the focus of his prayer. In last Sunday's passage, Jesus was praying for himself. But in these verses, he prays for his disciples, the 11 men who are with him that evening and who have been with him for the previous three years. We know he's praying for them in particular because in the very next verse after this passage, verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And as we'll see next week, he then goes on to pray for believers in general. But in this week's passage, Jesus' focus is on the disciples. That doesn't mean we can sit back and say to ourselves, well, this has no relevance to us. No, we are in essentially the same period of salvation history as those first disciples. Much of what Jesus said to them or prays about them, much of it applies to us as well. Now, Jesus knows these disciples, these 11 disciples, are listening to him as he prays. And he's expecting them to pay attention to the content of his prayer. This prayer is rather like a prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 11, where he says at one point, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. I said this for the benefit of the people standing here. Sometimes people, Jesus prays with a view to influencing the people who are listening in. And that's what's going on in today's passage. Jesus knows his disciples are listening to him as he prays, and he wants them to learn from his prayer. He's using this prayer to prepare them for his upcoming departure. It's an opportunity for him to act like a loving parent, minimizing separation anxiety, so the separation will be as painless as possible. In this prayer, Jesus looks back and he looks forward. He reviews and he forecasts. Imagine a wedding slideshow that fills the first five minutes with the usual photos of the bride and groom when they were children and then teenagers, and then when they started dating and when they got engaged. But then in the second half of the wedding slideshow, there are photos of the couple several years into their marriage, and then photos of children, grandchildren, and then the couple in retirement. This prayer is a bit like that imaginary past and future wedding slideshow. Roughly speaking, in verses 6 through 10, Jesus looks back. 
reviewing the good things the disciples have enjoyed while he's been with them. And roughly speaking, in verses 11 through 19, Jesus looks forward, reassuring the disciples that the good things they've enjoyed with him won't be lost when he's no longer physically with them. We're going to follow that two-part structure for the rest of this sermon, beginning with looking back, verses 6 through 10, looking back. The big theme of verses 6 through 10 is revelation. Jesus says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Manifested means made visible, exposed, displayed, revealed. In the story of the man born blind in John chapter 9, just before Jesus gives that man sight, he says that God's work will be displayed in the blind man's life. That word displayed in John 9 is the same word in the original language as manifested here in our passage in verse 6. God's word, God's work is displayed, revealed, manifested when Jesus heals that blind man, giving him sight. God's work is displayed in him. That's John 9. Here in chapter 17, Jesus goes up a level. He goes up a level from displaying God's work. He says, I have manifested your name. How do you display a name? By God's name, Jesus means God's character, his nature. If someone says to you, go out and make a name for yourself, they're not telling you to invent a new first name. They're saying you should go and gain a reputation. And that reputation will spring from your character, your deeds, your nature. I can't make a name for myself as a great mathematician. Ain't gonna happen. Because math is not in my nature. I just could not make a name for myself in that way as a great mathematician. A person's name, their reputation, springs from their nature. That's how Jesus is using name in verse 6. It's a way of talking about God's nature, what God is like. And that is what Jesus has displayed to his disciples. Jesus is making a spectacular claim because who can display God's nature apart from God himself? Day after day, Jesus has shown his disciples what God is like because he is God. God come down from God, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. We can think of Jesus' life among those disciples as the great display. It's true that God had already made a name for himself before Jesus came down into the world. The disciples would have had a certain understanding of God's nature before they began spending time with Jesus. But Jesus added so many extra details to their understanding of what God is like. Jesus' love, his compassion, his power, his servant-heartedness, his eagerness to reach across social boundaries, 
to lonely outcasts, the disciples saw it all. Just think how God's reputation must have grown in their eyes the more they got to know Jesus. One of those disciples was John, the author of this gospel. At the start of the gospel in John chapter 1 verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God, but God the only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God. He means no one has ever seen him in all his fullness. That's true. But God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, John is writing after Jesus has returned to the Father, has made him known. Those are the words of someone who had a ringside seat as Jesus manifested God's name, a ringside seat for the great display. No wonder John wanted to write a book about Jesus. No wonder he left us with John's gospel. Now, when we think of Jesus manifesting God's name to the disciples, in addition to Jesus' miracles and his personality, we must also think of Jesus' words, his teaching. His words revealed more of God's nature to the disciples as well. His words were part of the big reveal. In fact, Jesus himself singles out his teaching in this looking back section of the prayer. He says in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I have given them the words that you gave me. Jesus picks out his teaching as the major component of the big reveal. It was his teaching that persuaded the disciples that he really had come from the Father. Normal human speech is hit or miss, isn't it? We've all had the experience of saying something and then wishing you could take back those words that just streamed out of your mouth. But with Jesus, his speech wasn't hit or miss. It was hit, hit, hit. Everything he said was meaningful, insightful, and true. His words were part of the great display. His words revealed the character of God. We're still in the first half of Jesus' prayer. He's reviewing his time with the disciples. As we watch that slideshow, we can easily see why Jesus needs to prepare his disciples for his departure. What an extraordinary experience they've had with him, living alongside him. We can easily see why Jesus needs to address their inevitable separation anxiety. But before we move on to the second half of the passage, which is where Jesus does that anxiety minimizing, before we move on, we need to notice how the disciples reacted to the great display. It had two main effects on them. The first is that they have believed. We see that there at the end of verse 8. They have believed that you sent me. And the second is that they have glorified Jesus. At the end of verse 10, Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Or as it says in a different translation, glory has come to me through them. Those two effects are connected. It's because the disciples have believed that they have glorified Jesus. And those two effects are at stake. 
as Jesus prepares to leave his disciples and return to the Father? Will they continue to believe in him and glorify him when he's not physically with them? That question hanging over the disciples at this juncture brings us to the second part of the sermon on verses 11 through 19, looking forward, looking forward. We can tell Jesus is looking forward, looking ahead from those striking words in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Jesus knows in a few hours time he'll be arrested and put on trial, a process that will lead to his crucifixion and then his resurrection and then his ascension into heaven. His mind is filled with those fast approaching events. And so he says, I am no longer in the world. Then he immediately says, but they are in the world. The disciples will be staying. Jesus underlines that in verse 15 when he says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And he underlines it again in verse 18 when he says, I have sent them into the world. Jesus is fully aware of the challenges the disciples will face without him. In verse 14, he speaks of the world's hatred. In verse 15, he speaks about the evil one, meaning the devil. And so he prays to God the Father, asking the Father to protect these vulnerable disciples. Let's all look down, please, to the second half of verse 11, where Jesus prays for the disciples to be protected. He prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The disciples won't survive in their own strength. They will only stay true to God's name as revealed in Jesus if God himself powerfully keeps them. At this point, it's worth reminding ourselves that when Jesus prays, it's not like a child making a wish while cutting their birthday cake, wishing that school would be cancelled and the family will go to Disney World. Jesus doesn't pray for things that are wildly inappropriate and out of the question. He prays for things that he knows the Father wants to do. He prays for things that he knows the Father is planning to do. And so when we see Jesus praying for the Father to protect his disciples, it should make us confident that the Father certainly has the power to do that protecting and is planning to do that protecting. As Jesus looks ahead to what life will be like for the disciples without him, he doesn't see squabbling or gloom in those slideshow pictures of the future. He sees two outcomes of the Father's protecting, unity and joy. His prayer at the end of verse 11 finishes with the words that they may be one even as we are one. And there's another, that they may, in verse 13. That they may 
have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Unity and joy, those are good slideshow pictures for Jesus to see as he looks ahead to the disciples' future without his physical presence among them. And those things aren't wishful thinking, like a child wishing for Disney World instead of school, because Jesus knows his Father's will and his Father's power. The Father can bring those things about. He can maintain the disciples' unity and joy in Jesus' absence. Well, we're almost ready to think about how Jesus' prayer for those 11 men with him should impact us 2,000 years later. But before we do that, we mustn't overlook what Jesus says in verse 19. In verse 19, it is as if Jesus reminds himself that he still needs to do something to secure that joyful, united future for the disciples. They won't have that future unless he sanctifies himself. He says in verse 19, And for their sake I sanctify myself, that they also may, that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's talking about his death on the cross. To sanctify means to set apart or consecrate Jesus set himself apart. For their sake, I sanctify myself. He set himself apart when he laid down his life on the cross. That was when he made his body a holy offering to God, a holy sacrifice of atonement. Jesus was righteous, but he suffered on the cross for the sins of the unrighteous, so that whoever trusts in him would no longer have to suffer punishment for their sins. For their sake I sanctify myself, Jesus says in verse 19, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The disciples will be truly sanctified, they will be cleansed from all their sins, they will be set apart from the world, set apart for serving God because Jesus freely set himself apart as a holy offering on the cross. The setting apart of the disciples couldn't happen, wouldn't happen without the setting apart of Jesus on the cross. And he did that not only for those 11 disciples, but also for you and for me. If you're listening today, perhaps you're listening to this sermon online. And if you're listening as someone who's not yet following Jesus, please put your trust in him so that you too will be cleansed from sin and set apart for God. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Come to Jesus to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus can learn from this passage what our Christian experience should be like. 
As I said earlier, we're in essentially the same period of salvation history as the 11 disciples Jesus is praying for. That means the unity and joy that Jesus speaks of in this passage are also available for us today. How do we get there? How do we experience that unity, that joy? Well, they are outcomes of the prayer that Jesus is praying. Remember that language, that prayer language, that they may, that is the language of prayer, that they may be one, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Unity and joy are the outcome of prayer. They're not something we need to uh, summon up by ourselves in our own strength through our own human resources. They're the outcome of prayer. We can pray for them expectantly, just as Jesus prays expectantly. But if we follow the development of Jesus' prayer, we'll see that there is something else involved. God works in the world through means, through instruments. And what we see is that Jesus follows up that prayer in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. With another prayer in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Remember how we saw earlier that it was Jesus teaching his words that he picked out out of that whole great display that the disciples saw as he manifested God's name to them. He picked out his teaching. And in the same way, God will use his word to give us the unity and the joy that Jesus speaks of in this prayer. If you and I have a a serious disagreement, if there is disunity, if there is serious division between us, how can we resolve it and move forward? Isn't it through bringing our disagreement to the Bible? Letting the Bible have the final say. If we still can't reach agreement, but the Bible indicates that what we're disagreeing about isn't a central matter, it's not an issue of primary importance, then we can agree to disagree in Christ with our essential unity preserved. But if the Bible reveals our disagreement to be centrally important to Christianity, then we'll have to part ways because the Bible will have shown us that we don't have the same faith. We can't worship Jesus together. There was a great Anglican bishop in the 19th and early 20th centuries called Bishop J.C. Ryle. He said, Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It is not the unity which pleases God. Unity which is obtained by the sacrifice of truth is worth nothing. It is not the unity which pleases God. We gain true unity through the word of God, the Bible. And the Bible will also feed our joy in Christ. It's as we dig into his word that we remember the wonders 
that we have in him. All that he has done for us, all that he has given us, all that we can rejoice in together. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' teaching was the most precious thing about his great display, the thing he singles out in this prayer. And similarly, his word, the Bible, will keep us united in him and it will keep restoring the joy of our salvation. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, we want to echo the Lord Jesus' prayer now and pray again for your protection. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep us in your name, the name you gave Jesus. And we pray this, that we may be one, even as you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. We pray to Heavenly Father that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Please give us a hunger for your word. Open our minds to understand it rightly. Sanctify us through it, we pray, for Jesus' sake. And we ask that as you do this, we would have the joy of Jesus Christ fulfilled in ourselves. Amen.